Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Chit Heads. My guest today is Richard Miller. Richard Miller is the founder, executive director, and president of the board of directors of the iRest Institute. Richard is a clinical psychologist, author, researcher, yogic scholar, and spiritual teacher. For over 40 years, Richard has devoted his life and work to integrating the non-dual wisdom teachings of yoga, tantra, advaita, Taoism, and Buddhism with Western psychology. Among his mentors were Gene Klein, TKV Desikachar, and Stephen Chang. Richard is the founding president and CEO of the Integrative Restoration Institute, also known as the iRest Institute, co-founder of the International Association of Yoga Therapy, and founding editor of the professional journal of IAYT. He is also a founding member and past president of the Institute for Spirituality and Psychology and a senior advisor for the Bauman Foundation for the study of awareness and its impact on well-being. He's the author of Yoga Nidra, The Meditative Heart of Yoga, and he serves as a research consultant studying the iRest Yoga Nidra protocol that he has developed, uh, researching its efficacy on health, healing, and well-being with diverse populations, including active duty soldiers, veterans, college students, children, seniors, the homeless, the incarcerated, and people experiencing issues such as sleep disorders, PTSD, chemical dependency, chronic pain, and related disorders. We're going to talk a little bit about that today. So in addition to his research and writing projects, Richard also lectures and leads trainings and retreats internationally. So hello, Richard. Thanks so much for joining me today. Good day. Happy to be here with you, Jacob. Yeah, it's a real pleasure to chat with you. Um, and before we start talking about um, the work that you do, I would love to hear a little bit about your long history with the yoga tradition. You've been, you know, in the community for, uh, according to your bio, 40 years now. And so I would love to hear a little bit about how you found the practice and maybe just a little bit of the story of your practice. I know it's been a long one, but maybe you want to share some of the highlights. Sure. It's a funny story how I got introduced in 1970. I was new to San Francisco and looking to meet people and somebody said, why don't you take a yoga class? And not knowing anything about yoga, I wandered down to the Integral Yoga Institute, signed up for a class. When I showed up, the 12-week session turned out they decided to teach it in silence. So we entered into the building in silence. The class obviously was taught by an instructor, so it wasn't silent then, but then we left the building in silence as well. So over the 12 weeks, I didn't meet a soul. That said, that first class I took at the very end, I met myself in a meditation where the teacher was teaching a rudimentary, what I now know as Yoga Nidra. And I had a most transformative moment where I walked out feeling a sense of oneness with the universe and a sense of deep connection with myself. So as I was walking home that night in 1970, a kind of a spontaneous vow came up to investigate what just happened and what was the teaching that I had uh, been receiving. So that began a long uh, course of studies where I dove into the yoga literature, got very interested in the teachings of non-dualism through Advaita texts, and started meeting and working with different teachers, uh, both here in the United States, in India, <clears throat> as well as in Europe. So I gradually began, began to get deeper and deeper into the teachings. 
at the same time, um, I was also pursuing a career as a psychologist, getting licensed and opening a practice. I ultimately opened a yoga studio as well and started studying with the Taoist master in the Taoist yoga tradition as well. Mm. So I started to synthesize the teachings from the East, from India, from the East of China through Taoism, but also I was meeting teachers in the Zen tradition as well and sitting Zen and Mahayana Buddhism and other teachings from the Buddhist tradition through several of my mentors. So I slowly began to integrate these different modalities along with my Christian background and began to formulate this practice of yoga nidra as it was um, arriving to me from the Indian tradition, which I trace back to about 4500 BC, mm. teachings of Sankhya, Patanjali's yoga, Advaita, and then ultimately the teachings of Kashmir Shaivism, which is a very um, unqualified approach to meditation which embraces all of life because some of the teachings were more uh, monastic in their approach whereas as a westerner I was always interested how do I integrate these teachings into my daily life I was married raising kids so the Kashmir tradition really brought me full force into integrating these teachings into everyday life work family and then around 2004, after I had been teaching this approach for a couple of decades and refining it, I got a call from Walter Reed Army Medical Center. One of my teachers had given a yoga nidra class in one of their settings, clinical settings, and they asked me if I'd be interested in doing some research. Mm. So I entered into a research project with the Army looking at yoga nidra as a healing force for post-traumatic stress and the research was so valuable to them they ended up hiring my teacher after the research project and so since 2000 and about six any wounded warrior coming through walter reed army medical center can get access to my meditation protocol as part of their healing regimen so that's spread i i uh, began the nonprofit in 2006, which is now the IREST Institute. I personally trained over 3,000 teachers worldwide. We're now in over 85 VA settings in the United States. We're doing research in Canada. I've recently met with the Australian Defense Force. They want to bring Yoga Nindra into their military settings. And we're also coming into England into their military. So it's been quite a quite a rocket ride the last 10 years, but it's been since about 1970 that I've been introduced to yoga and been refining this approach of meditation that I engage in. Yeah, I mean, it's so it's so inspiring to know that there's some form of yoga within a military setting. I don't think many people even realize and certainly wouldn't intuitively think that there would be any yoga whatsoever <laughs> within a military setting. And actually, it was, uh, it was funny because I was reading an interview with you on Sutra Journal, and you actually mentioned that originally when you had introduced or presented Yoga Nidra um, in these settings, they wanted you, you changed the name. Is that correct? Correct. It's true. They came to me. They said, look, we're military. We don't do yoga. We don't <laughs> meditate. 
So get rid of the word, would you? So I came up with integrative restoration, IRES, integrated because it integrates the psychological dimension and it restores us to our innate connectedness with the entire universe as well as to ourself. And back in 2004, everything was iPad and iPhone, so why not IRES? And the military said, great, we can do IRES. Yeah. You know, and then the funny addition you may know is they came back to me after the study and they said, you know what, we really like what you're doing. You can call it anything you want. Oh, that's amazing. So we we actually call it integrative restoration, high rest yoga, nidra, meditation. Mm. That allows us to come into homeless shelters, prisons, military centers and teach high rest. And then when I go into a yoga tradition-oriented school, I teach yoga nidra, and when I go over to a more meditative culture, I'll teach I rest meditation. Mm-hmm. So the name allows us entryway into many different uh, yeah, places I, that we otherwise wouldn't have access. Yeah, and I think it's appropriate for concepts to be malleable in that way, to sort of allow it to be palatable to different audiences and communities. That makes a lot of sense. Well, you know, it's interesting. We're now coming into Nepal and India teaching it to survivors of human trafficking. And originally they brought different forms of meditation in, but they kept being rejected because in any particular group, there were Muslims, Christians, Hindus, Buddhists, and Rosicrucians and all sorts of people. When they brought in IREST, everybody said, we can do IREST because yeah. I was presenting it in a very secular manner. Yeah, right. That makes sense. So for those uh, you know who are listening to this who are maybe brand new to Yoga Nidra, can you describe what it is or IREST? What, what is the practice of IREST or Yoga Nidra? Number one, it's a, it's a very ancient protocol, as I said, I've traced the roots back way into the early BCs, 4,500, 5,000 BC. Uh, We see it emerging in India, dividing north and south, and really becoming developed into this, what we know today as yoga nidra. Yoga meaning our connectedness with ourself and the universe. Nidra, while it means sleep, it means a changing state of consciousness, so that we're able to stay connected no matter the state we may be experiencing, whether it's happiness, sadness, joy, pain, whatever. And it's it's a simple 10-step uh, program that I've really refined more secularly. So I've taken the more uh, religious, um, archetypal kind of imagery and and aspects out of the practice so that anybody can practice it now, whether they're a Jew, a Christian, a Muslim, a Hindu, or an atheist. And people find that when they do practice it, whether they come from a Judeo-Christian background or from some Eastern perspective, it it, uh, makes them more, how should I say, understand their own tradition. So it's a 10-step protocol that basically helps a person develop a strong intention for their practice. That's the first three steps, actually, is is really refining and developing a sense of intention, because I like to think any journey starts with an intention, and if the intention is strong and well-developed, it keeps us in our journey heading true north, we might say, and it helps us develop a strong inner gyroscope and compass as we proceed through the practice. Uh, 
there are two steps that address um, body sensing and breathing. It's really become well understood that if we don't have access to body sensation, we can't really go very far in either our healing process if we're trying to heal through chronic pain or stress or something else, or developing resiliency or developing a deep sense of well-being or even a spiritual understanding. So we put a great deal of, of um, um, work initially into awakening the body as sensation. And we do that literally by um, moving attention slowly through the body, waking up the body to sensation, and then also integrating the breath so that we really ultimately come to be able to feel our body as sensation, vibration. Many people, when they do exercise or even, unfortunately, yoga, while they may become strong and flexible and have a sense of resiliency or stamina, they may not still have a good relationship to their body as sensation. Right. So we put a lot of emphasis on that. Then there are two components in the practice which are dealing with emotions and cognitions, which include thoughts, beliefs, images, memories. So we're learning how, I like to say, become friends with our body, our emotions, and our thoughts and beliefs, and heal through what we might call negative beliefs or negative emotions that kind of divert our attention and bind attention so that we can have uh, our energy and our full attention to healing and developing a, a deep sense of well-being. Then there's a component that really addresses this sense of well-being so that we're developing what we call an inner resource of well-being that actually is unchanging and indestructible so that people who do the protocol develop this inner um, place within themselves. It's a, it's a felt sense or a somatic sensation in their body of well-being or joy. Some people uh, relate to it as a sense of peace or an inner quality of refuge. But what it brings to us is a grounding force within ourselves that helps us navigate any situation we might be experiencing, whether it's grief, sadness, pain, cancer. We have within us an unbreakable foundation of well-being. So these, what are, are ultimately 10 steps, developing an intention, inner resource, body sensing, breathing, emotions, and working with uh, cognitions, thoughts, and beliefs, plus developing a well-refined sense of ourself as a witnessing perspective. That allows us to have distance from some difficult situation we're facing and yet remain connected to it so we can heal through it, but not get so wrapped up in it, over-involved in it, over-identified or fused with it that we can actually heal through it. And I think this is why we've been so successful with people with post-traumatic stress, chronic pain, people navigating cancer. We're, we're actually doing research with people going through bone marrow transplants, which can be very painful and isolating because oftentimes 
when people have bone marrow issues like leukemia, they have to be isolated for long periods of time. Mm. So the yoga nidra both helps develop a sense of well-being, helps, we've discovered, increase the immune response, but it also helps a person stay connected within themselves, no matter the situation or circumstance they're navigating. Mm. Mm. Wow, beautiful. That's a beautiful description of the practice. and um, and. And so now I just I'd love to hear you know you're working with so many uh, communities that really could benefit from this you know incredible um, practice of connection and and so I would love to hear a little bit about maybe some of the shifts or transformations that you've witnessed in some of these communities as a result of practicing yoga nidra. Love to share some of the stories because they really bring home the practice. Yeah. A couple come to my mind. One time I was attending a conference a couple of years ago, and as I was picking up my badge, the woman who was handing out the badges noticed my name and, and the word eye rest. And she said, are, are you Richard Miller, who does eye rest? And I said, yes, I am. And she immediately burst into tears. And she relayed the story that her son had gone off to war and had done a number of tours in Afghanistan and Iraq and had come back completely shattered and broken. And she said, I, I had lost my son. She said one day he was visiting me and I asked him if he'd be willing to come down, rest with me on the floor and do this guided practice of IRS. And he agreed and lay down on the floor and we did a, a long practice of IRS. And she said, when he got up off the floor, she said, I had gotten my son back. Wow. He had come home to himself. And I've heard this many, many times before. I was at a military center about a year and a half ago teaching a group of wounded warriors who were in an inpatient hospital. And they were there for anywhere from six to 18 months healing through their depression, PTSD, and other wounds that they had experienced from their time in Afghanistan or Iraq. And this one fellow at the end of the practice, when I asked for reflections, he turned to me and he said, I feel like I just came home. And truly the hair on my arms and the back of my neck stood up because of the power of his words. I've seen this in homeless shelters, <clears throat> excuse me, with all sorts of different communities where he worked with in prisons and also with just regular folk, this sense of coming home to themselves, um, developing a sense of resiliency. So on this side of healing, we've got tremendous stories of people. I remember working with one fellow in a homeless shelter who had tremendous chronic pain for over 12 years. And he had lost his home, lost his insurance, lost his bank account, and was homeless now with this chronic pain that he couldn't get rid of. And after his third practice, he came off the floor and he said to me, I don't understand. I don't have any pain in my body in this moment. What, what just happened? Wow. And what we found is when we go into these deep, states of consciousness that yoga nidra brings us into it can have a tremendous healing effect where people lose for either a few moments or minutes or hours the sense of pain that they've had but we've also had people who've come back 
after their fourth, fifth practice and say, and say, I don't know what's going on here, but I no longer have the pain in my body that I used to have. Now, on a more resilient kind of joyful note, there was one woman in one of my studies after she came up off the floor after her first yoga nidra practice, she said, look, I don't know what you're doing here. I didn't hear a word you said. I fell asleep. This is probably a whole bunch of kaflui and I'm, I'm walking out of here. And she walked out of the room and I thought, well, I'll never see her again. <laughs> well, she came back the next week and she said, when we asked for early reports before we began the practice, she said, I don't know what's going on here. But I'm a, usually a very angry person. I don't like being around myself, and people don't like being around me. She said, this whole week, I've been full of joy. I love being with myself. People have been loving being around me. So I don't know what you're doing here, but I want more of this. And she went on to finish the entire study. And a couple of years later, I came back to this uh, place where I had done the study, and she heard that I was coming back. And so she shows up, and she said, I just want to let you know the effect that that practice has had long-term on my life. I've healed so many of the aspects that, that were making me such an angry person, and I just want to shake your hand and say thank you, thank you. So it's, it's quite amazing to see transformations like that. And then on a more spiritual side, you know, the transformation I went through, which I've witnessed with countless people now, where they come feeling a sense of loss of connection with themselves, even the world around them. And I know that long-term stress has this effect on people. They, they lose a sense of connection with themselves and they they can begin to feel isolated or alienated in the world around them. And that first practice I did back in 1970 really deeply connected me to myself and to the universe. Mm. And I've seen this profound effect that short-term and long-term practice can have where people really do reconnect with both themselves and with the world around them. And there's been a lot of research that people have been looking into. How do we help people who've lost a sense of meaning or value or purpose through, through losing their job or illness or homelessness? And one of the things I've come to deeply appreciate through the research is when people do a practice like Yoga Nidra, like IRS, it helps them reconnect to a deep sense of value, meaning, and purpose that's now separate from what they do in the world mm. or, or what they're experiencing. So people going through deep illnesses like cancer, multiple sclerosis, um, leukemia, homelessness, where they've lost a sense of value because they can't work or they're in chronic pain, they've recaptured this inner sense of meaning, value, and purpose that's independent of what they're doing or experiencing. So uh, there are hundreds and thousands of stories I can tell you, yeah, but those are no, those few are, that come off the cuff. Those are some incredible stories and, and really beautiful, you know, um, 
transformations and 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 so thank you for sharing so you know one of the things when i was re when i was reading the um one of the interviews you did about yoga nidra you you mentioned the the sh the the koshas the sheaths and and so i'm wondering if we can kind of describe this process that you're that you're discussing in relation to that because i know we haven't really talked about the koshas on the podcast before and i would love to kind of unpack those if you're if you're willing to go sure. you know a little bit into that yoga philosophy <clears throat> Well, a kosha means some covering yeah. that we've identified with and taken to be only ourself. So, you know, a kind of a funny way of looking at it is people get a brand new car and they kind of identify with their car. And if somebody kicks their car, they feel like they've been personally kicked. Yeah. Well, we, we do the same thing with our body. We identify so deeply with our body that if somebody kicks it or hurts it, we take deep personal offense. Mm. It's interesting because research shows that we actually enter into our body at birth and begin to form an identification with it. If I gave you a rake, very quickly you'd identify with the end of the rake as your new hand. Mm -hmm. So we see how the mind identifies with different objects like arms, legs, body, but we also identify with our emotions, with our thoughts, and with different sensations. So for instance, when hunger arrives in the morning, we don't say, oh, look, hunger is present. We say, I'm hungry. Yeah. Or if sadness arrives, we say, I'm sad, or I'm angry, or I'm happy. And we say, I have cancer or I'm a victim of this. We don't say cancer is present. These are identifications or what I call fusions with what we call changing circumstances in our life. Yeah. And what Yoga Nidra does is it helps us inquire and investigate these different sheaths, the sheath of our body, the sheath of our energy, the sheath of our emotions, our thoughts, and different other sheaths that are more subtle, like um, awareness. Yeah. And as we, I, as we investigate them, there's a natural what we call disidentification. What I mean by that is we don't uh, dissociate or get away from, we realize that I have a body, but there's something here that's more than just this body. Yeah. For instance, we may... Some people have gone through terrible circumstances where they've lost an arm or a leg or a limb or a kidney or a part of their lung. We're still the same as we were before the loss. While we have to respect and understand the loss and its ramifications, who we are as a human being hasn't fundamentally changed. It's the same with our emotions. They're coming, they're going, but there's a tendency when they're present to over-identify with them, take it personally, and become reactive in our responses. Yoga Nidra is helping us learn how to be with an emotion, disidentify from it so that we can say, I feel this emotion, I am having this emotion, but I'm also aware of this emotion. I'm more than this emotion. And to then investigate what's a true response rather than what I might call a negative reactive response. What's a true response in 
by having and I can truly navigate this circumstance, this emotion, this thought. People who come back from car accidents, plane accidents, grave illnesses, war time experiences, there's often an identification with memories, with thoughts and images. We're helping them uh, bring those memories in and learn how to disidentify from them so the memories then kind of fade along with the emotions that might have been hooked into them. And so I've worked with many people, say, who've been in car accidents, and after doing the practice for some time, they'll say, I know that I was in a car accident. I can kind of remember it, but I've lost the emotional charge to it, and I no longer have nightmares mm -hmm. or memories of it. And the same thing happens with post-traumatic stress. And we know that even in these days of working in an office where the phone is constantly ringing, we've got multiple projects that we're juggling, our system can go, become overwhelmed by the stress. Yoga Nidra is a practice that helps us feel the stress, but not get so involved in it. Right. And it's giving us the techniques, relaxation techniques, breathing techniques, learning how to navigate the emotions that may come as a result of working so that we can truly respond in a very positive, proactive manner that we can move through these experiences and not get so caught up or bound in them. Right. And just one more here, which, which these days many people are really cognitively oriented. In other words, they're thinking so much <laughs> and they've lost in a way touch with their feelings and how to feel through a situation. Yeah. And as Einstein so beautifully said, we cannot solve a problem with the same mind that created it. And what Yoga Nidra does, and the research has shown this, it shifts us out of what we call a default network where we can be caught in negative thoughts and looping in, in ways that aren't productive. And we shift into a whole different regimen of our body and our brain where we have access to insight and understandings that come that we can't otherwise have when we're just caught in the thinking mode. So we're actually shifting from thinking to a more uh, deeper feeling, felt sense, somatic place in our body where we actually have access to insight that we otherwise can't have. That's beautiful. So uh, just to, um, to, uh, to go back a little bit then, you know, about what you said about um, I, that depression is present, I'm versus I'm depressed, and and so in that kind of it's in 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 that example, I could see where you know very easily where that could be um, sort of a, liber a liberating way of looking at it because rather than I'm depressed, you know, it's a part of me or I'm a depressed person. Depression is present, but I am something other than that, you know, that <laughs> presence. But you know, in the case of then you know cancer, for example, what kind of opportunities arise in terms of one's own awareness when I think of myself not as, you know, I have cancer, but I see it more as cancer is present. Like, what does what does that open up for the person who's uh, afflicted with cancer? Um, well, I'll, I'll take both depression and cancer because I'm thinking of two different individuals. Okay. One who came to me with fourth stage cancer 
and another person who came with me with years of depression. And both had tried multiple interventions, different medications, and the woman who came to me with the cancer was devastated and lost in, in the cancer and in, in a way had lost a sense of value and meaning in her life. The person who came to me with depression similarly had been to many psychiatrists, many medications, different therapies, and nothing had helped her resolve the depression. With both of them, I took the initial approach, rather than first dealing with the depression or the cancer, I wanted to develop within them a relationship to what this I called before as an inner resource. This is a place within ourselves, I, I call it simply a place of being. And I helped develop within the first about a half an hour, 45 minutes, a relationship within themselves to this place within themselves, which I helped kind of reawaken. Yeah something we all know in times when we are just resting back between two doings or we're sitting in an easy chair and we're just being. When we really focus on being, it can develop within ourselves a very deep sense of well-being that all's well in spite of what's going on. Mm-hmm. Now, interestingly, the person who came with depression after we had developed this inner resource of being and we started working with the issues around her depression, she came back for the second session and she said, I just want you to know that this resource that you helped me contact of being, it left quite quickly after I left your office and the depression kind of came back full force. But what it instilled in me was a sense of hope that I could now navigate through the depression. And over the next couple of years, we worked almost weekly or biweekly, and slowly she navigated through her depression, but using the inner resource as a real grounding sense within herself of something that was okay in spite of the depression. The same thing with the person with cancer. She she allowed, she restored a sense within herself of this well-being that gave her a renewed sense of what she came to call love. She said, I realized I had fallen out of love with myself mm. through the cancer. Yeah. And I felt the cancer was, you know, an enemy that I had to fight and I couldn't fight it and I fell out of a sense of love. She said in regaining that, it gave her a a renewed sense of resiliency in working with the cancer. And I knew her for the next few years while she continued to work with the cancer and she ultimately succumbed. But she continued to say back to me that that inner resource helped her meet the cancer and all the difficulties she had to go through and keep that sense of inner love as she navigated the cancer. So if I were to say anything about the meditation that I call IRES that comes out of this tradition of Yoga Nidra, I would say the main thing it helps us connect with is this deep inner resource of well-being that's indestructible that can help us navigate things like cancer, things like depression, or any circumstance, because we're all going to get a slice of high, you know, in our lifetime, whether it comes as cancer or pain or grief, because we've lost someone near and dear to us. Yoga Nidra helps us develop this strong inner resiliency to withstand 
any circumstance we're going to find ourselves navigating. Wow. Well, you're making an excellent case for Yoga Nidra, Richard. <laughs> so, I, so I want to shift gears just a little bit. And, um, and you know, you're mentioning how earlier how even the practice of yoga may not necessarily bring someone into a kind of intimate relationship with their own bodily sensations. And, and in general, we're sort of out of um, contact with that. And, and so I want to ask you a question that I ask many of the elders that I feature, elders of our community that I feature on this show, which is, um, you know, actually just before I started this call, my a friend of mine on Facebook had, had um, shared a, a YouTube sort of, it was a video, but it's, um, it was a, um, essentially an advertisement for a show that's coming on some network called Yoga Girls Kicking Asana. And the preview, uh, the preview <laughs> is, is um, basically a who's who of the most superficial yogis you could imagine um, portraying the, the practice in a very kind of, you know, a way that would work for Hollywood and maybe for ratings, but certainly um, would make many of us cringe. So with the, you know, with the, with the rise of yoga and the, and, the, and the popularization of yoga, as you've obviously witnessed over your 40-year career um, in the tradition, you know, what are your, what are your thoughts on this? You know, is there, do we, should we lament this? Should be, we, should we be worried about it? Or um, what are your thoughts on this kind of, you know, increasing superficializing of the practice? I'm reminded of a quote by Rumi. Mm. There are thousands of ways to kneel and kiss the ground. I entered into yoga as the most transformative experience through the practice of yoga nidra. Subsequently, I did get involved in a very, what you call, kick-ass form of hatha yoga. <laughs> and it helped me develop a relationship to my body that I didn't have before. That said, the form that I was practicing, like many forms of yoga and other forms that people are doing in exercise regimens, they develop a sense of striving, inner competition, comparison, um, where we're more seeking an end goal than really appreciating the moment-to-moment -moment sensation that the practice is awakening within us. So I've seen many yogis who can bring their leg over their head or lean over and you know kiss their feet, um, but they don't have a relationship to the sensorial aspect of their body. And as one of my teachers, now one of my senior teachers said, when she first came to my class and I was talking about feeling, 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 she went home in a way kind of depressed, realizing that all the yoga that she had done up until that moment hadn't helped her really feel her body. She was strong and capable and flexible and but it was constantly striving to get somewhere. Yeah. So, but with that said, any kind of form, whether it's yoga, tai chi, kick-ass, gentle yoga, um, exercise, they're doorways that I think ultimately can help a person begin to connect to themselves. And I've seen so many people from my domain of yoga come to me and saying, you know, I've done all these extreme forms, but I feel like something's still missing. Mm. And I said, welcome home. Yeah. 
So I, I think they can help us get in touch with ourselves to a certain level, but then we're going to start to feel there's something more here, isn't there? And even in teaching Yoga Nidra, many people come to me wanting to heal their pain or their PTSD, or they just want to feel a sense of feeling better. And I've seen so many thousands of people basically come to a place in their practice where they say, you know, thank you, doc, I, I got what I wanted, I'm feeling good, my pain's gone, or I'm able to deal with it, or I'm, I'm just feeling happy. And thanks, and they'll leave. And then they come back several years later and they say, you know what, there's something else here, isn't there? And I said, uh, yes, there's a deeper practice here. Come on back and we'll show you these deeper aspects. So I'm happy with anybody doing any practice if it's serving them in some manner, shape or form. And I, I'm kind of a pragmatic optimist. Yeah. In other words, pragmatically, hey, go do, you know, ride your mountain bike, go to the gym, do kick-ass yoga, do qigong to become a, a you know, a black belt, whatever. <laughs> but ultimately, I have this optimism that they're going to come to the end of that particular kind of form or practice and realize there's something else here, and then they'll start looking for a new teacher, and ultimately they'll find me or someone else who helps them gain access to these deeper forms of the practice yeah. that really do end up giving us a deep sense of connection with ourself, the universe. And we find, I would say, our true place in the universe where we're okay where we are and with how things are. Yeah. It's interesting that you say that because I have actually found that more often than not when I have conversations with people like yourself who've begun practice in either the 60s or the 70s, generally the frame is similar. It's a very kind of like, it's okay, don't worry so much about it. There are many, you know, roads to the top and most people, if they start from a superficial place, get to the depth of it anyway, if that's what they're really seeking. And and so it's refreshing to hear you say that again. And, and, and it's interesting that, you know, it seems like it's the maybe the newer yogis who've practiced, started practicing either in the 90s or the thousands who are much more concerned about the rising, you know, popularity of yoga and the superficial forms of it and all and all this. So, so I, I defer to your wisdom. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I see this true, not just in this field, but say as a psychologist early in my training, I watched a video with four of the most well-known therapists in the world. And what I came to appreciate is they came from very divergent backgrounds and theoretical aspects. When they were in the room with the client, they were all basically doing the same thing. Yeah. While their students were all doing different things. Mm -hmm. So I think, as you say, early on, we're kind of enthusiastic and we're, you know, go, go, go. But we don't really have yet the deep understanding that comes over time where all paths up that mountain ultimately come more and more to the same one path. And in the end, I can't tell the difference between an advanced practitioner from Christian tradition, Jewish tradition, Buddhist tradition, Muslim, atheist. They're, we're all doing the same thing. We're all human beings doing the best we know how working with our emotions and our thoughts, and we've all come to learn how to do it. But it's when we're at the 
bottom of the mountain, there just seem to be all these divergent paths, but they're all coming to the same place on the top of the mountain. Yeah. So, you know, um, I, I do want to talk to you a little bit about one of the traditions that is has been formative for you. Um, but before that, I just want to remark on how I really appreciate your discerning between, um, you know, being strong and physically fit and, and but uh, that the, the distinguishing between that and like having a feeling sense of your body, because I think we haven't really talked about that distinction, because I think there are a lot of people that that feel that they have a very intimate sense of their body because they are physically fit or physically active. But this is a very different thing is what I hear you're saying from a real felt sense of a sensorial awareness, like what you're saying. So it is. And I, because I've been working in the military now for about 12 years with military, I'm glad to see that they have a protocol they call total force fitness. Yeah. And it's about having strength and stability and stamina and um, resiliency. But in the last several years, they've added a new component, which is, they call it spiritual. And they brought together... They call it spiritual in the military? Yeah. Wow. And they brought together rabbis and ministers and priests and people from all different traditions, because in, in the military, people come from all religious and spiritual backgrounds. Right. And they all agreed on the term spiritual. So they put this new component into total force fitness, which is respecting a person's spirituality, however they come to that. But that within that are these domains of access to the body. So that, as you say, we're really feeling the body. We have a body. We're relating to the body. It's not some foreign object that we're just trying to make it strong and, you know, full of stamina, but that it's here to really help us as a human being on our way. Yeah. So in Yoga Nidra, I've really have come to appreciate the amount of time that we need to put in to reawakening the body that's become kind of dull and insensitive through the ways we work in the world or we through our eating habits or just our social habits we we don't tend to have a good relationship to our body our emotions and our thoughts and when we think about it we know a thought because it's a sensation actually we know an image because of its impact sensorially the same with an emotion or any kind of pain. They're all feedback or messengers that are being sent to us that when we pay attention to them, they, they help us move through the world. So the more deep access we have to these physical sensorial messengers that are arriving constantly within us, the more ability we have to respond and navigate the world. Mm -hmm. Very well put. So, yeah, so now uh, I... I'm, I'm very interested in Taoism in general, and it's sort of a, a topic that we haven't had an opportunity to cover so much. And, and so I appreciated that it's sort of one of the traditions that you reference as being kind of formative of your, you know, integrative outlook. And so I'm just kind of curious how you see the teachings of Taoism connect to yoga. Absolutely. My teacher, Stephen Chang, I met in 1973, and when I went to a talk, that I was invited to that he was giving, I saw so many deep connections between what I was studying in the yoga tradition, in the psychological tradition, with what he was presenting in the Taoist tradition. So I started studying with him and attended every 
seminar and he gave over the next number of years, and he actually invited me ultimately to write a book, which was the first book I wrote in 1975 called The Book of Internal Exercises, which was the, an approach of Qigong for healing purposes. Okay. And he was very um, aware of this relationship of the body and the mind, also with diet. So I was studying Chinese medicine, acupuncture, astrology, and these Taoist uh, what are called Taoist yoga practices, very in-depth forms of learning how to move energy in the body and, and, and heal the body as well as move in the world. So the Taoist perspective of yoga, to me, is very closely aligned with the Indian tradition of yoga and the other yogas I've studied from the Tibetan tradition. They all basically are coming up the mountain with slightly different conceptual understandings, yeah. but I think we're all walking the same actual path. We just have a different way of looking at it. So from the Chinese perspective and the Taoist perspective, we've got the five elements and we're constantly working with those. But over in the Yoga Nidra, we have the five elements and over in the Tibetan tradition, they might have four or the five elements. And we're all working with different images, colors, shapes, forms, sounds. I've come to appreciate, say, in the Taoist perspective, there's a lot of work with sound, mm. as in the yoga tradition and, say, the Tibetan tradition. But I also see it in the Judeo-Christian tradition and Muslim tradition. Sound is a way in when we truly understand what a sound is, which is vibration that's opening up access into our body. Yeah. And all the forms of healing that I learned from the Taoist tradition were the same forms in the yoga tradition, just called by different names. So for me, slowly I saw I was digging a well over here in Taoism, I was digging a well over here in yoga, I was digging a well over here in Buddhism, and I was also digging a well over here in the Christian tradition, and I realized I can dig all these wells, but I never may hit water. Why don't I dig one well? And around that time when I was formulating that understanding, I got an invitation to go to China to study more of the Taoist, and I got an invitation to go to India to study with TKB Desikachar in the yoga therapy tradition. And it was interesting. There was no hesitation. I immediately signed up to go to India. And there was just some inner gyroscope that said, here's the well. So I started digging that well. That was 19, late 70s, really deeply into the yoga tradition. Now, I'm still pulling and I read into the Taoist and the Buddhist and the Christian tradition. So I still have access to those traditions. But I think by, for me, having mined the yoga tradition, this one well, this one path, you might say, it's really given me the depth of understanding that I was looking for, call it awakening, enlightenment, whatever you want to call it. But it's also along the way given me the depth of appreciation for all these other paths, including the path of Taoism. And I still stay in touch with my Chinese teacher, and I'm actually going to give him a call in a few days because I'm about to go to China, interestingly enough, oh, yeah? and teach Yoga Nidra in China and oh, next wow. year in Japan. Oh, how excellent. Yeah. So I'm hoping actually to get up into some of the mountains off 
around Wuhan, where the Taoist masters have been living perhaps for years or centuries. Wow, wow. that'll be incredible, won't it? So yeah, uh, then my last question, I guess, before we sort of um, uh, close this really interesting conversation that we've had is, um, <clears throat> I would love to just uh, know what your thoughts are on maybe what the biggest challenges you see are that are facing practitioners today or, or yoga seekers in general. Well, I think it has to do with what you mentioned, mm. which is we can easily get diverted into all sorts of paths that in a way, you know, are leading us up the mountain, we might say, but the weekend got diverted off into side shoots for for long periods of time. And and I see that happening in, in diet, I see it happening in the yoga, say, exercises and in meditation in general. People yeah. are doing the practices more for some achievement. Yeah. And and, you know, and that could be well-meaning, you know, get better strength, better stamina. But ultimately, I hope that people can keep coming back to a deeper understanding of what these different practices are, are trying to offer us in a, in a deep connection with ourself and the world around us. So I, I'm constantly asking people to look at when they're doing something, is it coming out of striving towards some end goal? Is it that they're wanting to achieve something? And which is fine, I, I don't wanna denigrate that, yeah. but to also look at there's something here in the immediacy of this moment that is a sense of well-being and everything is already okay. There's something within us when we connect with it, we feel, I, I think these six elements, we feel a sense of spacious openness. We feel a sense of living outside of just our thinking mind in a deeper somatic connection with ourself. We feel a basic ground of what I call perfection, that something about us is okay, no matter what's happening. And then there's something about it that's very familiar, we've always known, and it's independent of our circumstances, and it brings this deep core sense of love and well-being. And that it's not something that is outside of ourselves, it's already here, it's simple, it doesn't take huge amounts of time. It doesn't take 40 years of meditation. And so I really want to call people's attention to there really is something here that's vital, easily accessible. And as one writer said, what could be more needed than this in the universe and in the world we live in right now, which is so, so full of complexity and difficulties and fear-based um, issues that are going on. So I really want to say to people, there is something here in the immediacy of this moment that we can really deeply feel that gives us a sense of ground that we can navigate these difficult and challenging times we live in. Yeah, wow. Yeah, it sort of makes me wonder what the world would be like if everyone was practicing yoga nidra every day. <laughs> Be a well, different place. <laughs> we would be at peace. What I've come to respect is because we're all individuals, we can still have a sense of disagreement or yeah. differences, 
or conflict. But if we were really doing yoga nidra, there'd be no ability to do war because what it does is it gives us such a deep connection with the sense of other in front of us where yeah. we realize they are actually ourself in a different form and there's no sense in going to war with ourself. It doesn't make sense, but hey, let's celebrate difference, but yeah. let's not celebrate war. Yeah, I agree. Wow, well, this has been a really wonderful conversation, Richard. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us. Um, well, I appreciate your inquiries and your yeah, questions. And absolutely. Nice. So before we um, get off the call, I just wanted to see if you wanted to share a little bit about um, any any retreats or any workshops that you're doing coming up or just general information about where people can find you. Well, I invite people to the website, which is www.irest.com. US, I-R-E-S-T dot U-S, um, or they can Google my name, Richard Miller, or Yoga Nidra, or IREST. Um, and we are offering trainings, workshops, we call them immersions, where people can come and learn the practice for themselves, or learn and go on to become a teacher. And we're worldwide, so we're offering trainings here in the States, Canada, Australia, Bali, uh, all sorts of places, Australia, Germany, England. Uh, so we are worldwide. We have over 3,500 teachers now worldwide who are nice. practitioners and teachers. So we can locate a teacher anywhere, perhaps where a person is living. But we're also doing online courses where people can come and learn the practice with us online. So they may learn it in the comfortableness of their own home. So I, I just would say call people to the website, irest.us. Irest Excellent. All right. All right. Well, thank you so much, Richard. It's been a real pleasure. Well, thank you, Jacob. Lovely being here with you.